The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles to the book of John, chapter 16, as we continue our journey through what has been called by theologians the Upper Room Discourse, even though the latter half of this discussion takes place between the Upper Room and the bottom of the Kidron Valley, across which Jesus will walk and into which he will go into the, um, the Garden of Gethsemane and pray and be rejected and arrested. We find ourselves in John chapter 16, and I have to confess that initially I was going to do uh, somewhere around verse 5 through verse 20, 22, and I got into it this week and said there's no way that we can possibly do that. So we're going to take the scenic tour on these, this passage, which is really about the ministry of the Holy Spirit And I don't think we can stop and pause long enough to really fully grasp the wonder of God in spirit ministering to us. Let's pick it up in verse 5. John chapter 16, verse 5. Jesus says, But now I'm going to him who sent me. And yet none of you asks of me, Where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, your your heart's full of sorrow. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Almost hard to read. I want to read that again. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. A.W. Tozer is a theologian with whom I think every Christian in our generation ought to be familiar. He's written that wonderful book, um, The Pursuit of God and uh, Knowledge of the Holy, rather, and uh, that knowledge of the Holy always stands as a place in my own heart. Because that was the book that the Lord used to first open my eyes to the fact that God was much bigger than my simple um, thoughts had had, had ever tried to wrap its mind around. I I remember reading that book and just my mind exploding with the greatness of the glory of God. Uh, I, I I can't recommend it highly enough to you. It is in our bookstore. But to read Tozer is to run out of highlighter ink. It's to run out of ink. If you've read Tozer, you understand that it's probably easier to not underline things that, that, um, that you don't really think are important because you end up almost underlining every line of what he's written. He's that dense. One of the things he wrote that I underlined in one of his books decades ago still rings loudly in my mind. And I, I've said it over and over. Books don't change your life. Typically, paragraphs do. Unfortunately, you've got to read the whole book to find the paragraph because it's not the same paragraph for everyone. Those paragraphs typically involve a thought or a phrase or a sentence that kind of reorients the, 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 the plumb line of your thinking. It resets the clock in your mind. This was one of those moments. It still rings as loudly in my thinking as it did then. You've heard me say it before, and I assure you, you will hear me say it again. Tozer says that in the moment of sin, when a believer chooses to sin, in that moment... He has become 
a practical atheist. I remember reading that the first time and thinking, what are you talking about, Dr. Tozer? I'm no atheist. How in the world can you call me an atheist? Well, it's all in the term practical. He goes on to explain that we may say we believe in God, but in the moment of sin, we act like he doesn't exist. Isn't that true? I mean, if we really felt, understood, knew the full power of the omniscience and omnipresence of the almighty, holy God in the moment of choosing sin, would we make that choice? How does this happen? Well, the answer is that we forget that God is omnipresent. We put out of our mind that he is omniscient. But there's even a more personal and practical reason in what Tozer is saying, and I think it has absolute centrality to what we're talking about in the passage this morning. When we sin, when we're anxious, when we worry, when we're lonely, when we're unfaithful, when we're unfruitful, when we're confused, when we're troubled, all of these issues spring forth from our lack of attention to the presence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. I think it's fair to say every single sin we commit as a believer is an absolute deliberate act of stiff-arming the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, it may not be as conscious as that, but the truth is that's exactly what we're doing. He is no less here when we sin. We desperately try to forget that fact. All of these issues are, are, are rooted in our lack of attention giving to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Now, as we've noted before, one of the biggest, weakest, uh, the, one of the weakest rather points of theology in our generation is the doctrine of pneumatology, right? Pneumatology is the study of the Holy Spirit. I don't know of a single issue theologically in our generation on which people are more confused than that of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Go into uh, 10 churches and ask 10 different pastors or 10 different uh, elders or 10 different deacons or 10 different Sunday school teachers, what do you think the ministry of the Holy Spirit is? You're likely to get very varied interpretations. The doctrine of the Holy Spirit is something that we simply must understand. It's not a peripheral doctrine. It's not something that we can agree to disagree on. It's central. As I said, the moment of sin is really the stiff arming of the Holy Spirit. It's to, it's to refuse to recognize what Jesus says over and over in this upper room discourse that he will be with you. He will be in you. He will not leave you. He will be here to help and to comfort you. Now think about it. When you begin looking at the ministry of the Holy Spirit, it's overwhelming. And I just jotted down a few things that, that the scriptures say about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He convicts. We'll see that next week. He condemns. He comforts. He illumines the mind. He rejoices over our attitudes and actions just as he grieves sometimes over our attitudes and actions. He regenerates the human heart. He counsels, he baptizes, he grants gifts, he seals our salvation, he indwells the believer, he indwells the church, he grants gifts to the church, he grants gifts to the members of the church to minister to one another, he reveals the mind of God, he reveals and reminds us of Jesus, he wrote the Holy Bible, 
He generates fellowship between believers. He draws and woos us, and he saves us. And right now, he even prays for us. Do you have a clear understanding of the ministry of that silent shepherd, the Spirit of God who is holy? As you read in Acts 16, who is wonderfully confused with the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Jesus, and there's no confusion in the mind of God. It is the Spirit of God who is omnipresent, omniscient, and who particularly invades and indwells the life of a believer of the gospel. Now, understanding the ministry of the Holy Spirit will bring immeasurable clarity uh, to both your thinking and to your living. You and I need the Holy Spirit, but sometimes people forget that you and I have the Holy Spirit. He is with you. He is in you. He is among us, and he will not leave or forsake us. Do you have a good theology of the Holy Spirit? I think we're really better than most people at our theology of God the Father and his holiness. Go to Isaiah 6. You can go to uh, Isaiah uh, 40 through 66 and see this grandiose view of God the Father. Even in the Gospel of John, pointing to God the Father, Jesus is always explaining who he is and what he's like and what he does. And then there's the understanding of the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus. And when you get that knock on the door and the Jehovah's Witnesses want to come and tell you things about your Savior that simply are true, I think we're typically more equipped in those two categories to give an answer for what we believe than we are the ministry of the Holy Spirit. But here's what's happened in recent years. Most of the discussion of the Holy Spirit has centered around the gifts that he gives and whether some of those are permanent, whether some of those were temporary. That's a very important discussion to have. And we're going to have it sometime in some way, but it's not in this passage. I think the enemy has done a great job of diverting our attention to the gifting of the Holy Spirit and making us fight over the charismatic issues, which we need to be clear on. And in doing that, we have often neglected the permanent abiding presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit in our individual lives. Do you understand who is in you and who is with you? By the way, if I can ask you to please, I beg you, please be careful in how you reference the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not an it. It's not a force It's not a a ooey-gooey, rich and chewy kind of uh, spirit that pervades the world that you kind of plug into or out of. The Holy Spirit is a he. He's a person. He's a person of the Trinity. And he deserves the personal pronoun he, not it. He's not a force field, as one charismatic friend told me one time, that God the Father is inaccessible, God the Son is totally accessible, and God the Spirit is that energy and the force that you plug into to get the power to live um, uh, the Christian life and to do miracles. He's not a force field. He's not a force. He's a person. He can be lied to. He can be grieved. He can be joyed. He can be overjoyed. And he, he is with you if you know Christ. If you are a Christian, you already possess a relationship with the Holy Spirit. Whether or not you're giving attention to that 
or not. Jesus promised us in chapter 14, he was with you, he will be in you. He will permanently abide with you. Jesus promised that not only would he and God the Father both come and take up residence with us, but the the Spirit himself would as well. So how is your pneumatology? Do we talk often about the Holy Spirit? But there's something even uh, more important to grasp in the passage this morning. If Jesus had not left the earth after his resurrection and his ascension, the Holy Spirit would not have come to us. I want to say something now that I'll say some, I'll repeat it in a minute. The big question is why is that so? Why did Jesus have to go back to the Father before he would send the Spirit? And I want to confess, I had that question all week, and I read every commentary I could on it, and I, I came up with a goose egg. I don't know why, but Jesus, in his divine providence, in his infinite wisdom, said, I must be absent for him to be present in the fullness of his ministry. And we'll come back to that and discuss that in a moment. He is a he, not it. As Jesus continues to equip his men for, for life, remember what we said, with him, without him, which is another way of saying Jesus is going to be absent in physical presence. Uh, but present with them through the Spirit and in a spiritual way, he comes again to the subject of the Spirit of God. This is not the first time he's discussed this. He's taught them things over and over in this passage, and it's so much like a parent dealing with his children. To read the Upper Room Discourse, just to simply read it, is to hear Jesus repeat and repeat and repeat. There are two themes he continues to repeat, right? Make sure you love one another. Oh, yeah, by the way, make sure you love one another. In case you didn't get that, love one another. By this, all men will know that you love me when you love one another. Hey, guys, love each other over and over and over. And he also says, I'm leaving, the Spirit's coming. I'm leaving, and the Spirit's coming. Did you hear me? I'm leaving, and the Spirit's coming. And they never ask any questions about this. In fact, you get a little bit of Jesus' frustration in his humanity with the disciples in the first verse of what we're considering today. Jesus is saying, what? Okay, no questions? This is it, guys. I mean, I'm, a, I'm about to go be arrested and die, and nobody has their hand raised? No questions? Well, again, we come to the Holy Spirit, and it's inextricably linked to Jesus leaving and his ascension. I think he wants his men, I think he wants us to deeply consider the circumstances and the details of his departure, which will help us to make sense of why we have the presence of the Spirit. He wants to make sure they and we understand his absence so we could understand the Spirit's presence. Very important. In order to understand the full ministry of the Spirit's presence, we have to understand that we no longer have Jesus' physical presence here on the earth. So in order to get our minds around that, I want us to look at these three verses and discover together three considerations of Jesus' departure to heaven. Three considerations of Jesus' departure to heaven that will lead us right into the ministry of the Holy Spirit, by the way. The first reason is in verse 5, and that's to look at the reason for Jesus' absence. The reason for Jesus' absence. Verse 5, Jesus says, But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? 
Now, this is not the first time that Jesus has discussed his going away. It's been a dominant theme since the upper room, since they were sitting there having their, their, their meal together. Not only that, on their way to the upper room, Jesus is discussing with them the fact that the Son of Man will go up to Jerusalem, be arrested, be tried, turned over to the chief priests, executed, die, and rise again three days later. And they said, great, where do we get to sit? Utter incomprehensiveness. The disciples continue to hear Jesus teach things that they need to hear, and they just heard what they wanted to hear. Now, before we're too hard on the disciples, we need to look in the mirror, because we tend to read our Bibles that way. We tend to hear Christ that way. We tend to hear what we want to hear, what we think is most practical, and not stop to say, what is the Lord saying in this passage? What is the Lord saying in this discourse? Jesus' departure is going to play a dominant theme, by the way, in the rest of this chapter. Look down at John chapter 16, verse 10. He says, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Verse 17. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he's telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, in a little while you will, you will see me because I go to the Father. I mean, finally, by verse 17, they're going... Uh, huh? What, what, is, what is he saying? Verse 28. Jesus says, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. I am leaving the world again and going to the Father. This is not subtle. This is not hard to understand. Jesus drew them a very simple picture. I'm leaving. I'm going to the Father. I will not be with you any longer. But... I'm not going to leave you alone. He tells the man that he's leaving. Literally, that he's returning to the Father. Look over at chapter 17 for a moment, because this is, to me, this is the most uh, amazing proof of the deity of Christ, maybe in the whole New Testament, from an emotional standpoint. So the next time those guys come and knock on your door and tell you that Jesus is a God, not the God, Look at this, what he says in John chapter, in chapter 17, verse 5. Jesus praying, the high priestly prayer says, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, <laughs> my question is, who prays like that? In all of our prayer meetings, have you ever heard anyone say, Lord, I want to be with you like it was before the world was created. Those people are certifiable. No one prays like that unless you were with him before the world began. And Jesus keeps telling them, I'm going back to the Father. I'm going to my Father. Right over their heads. He's going to be with the Father. Now, just as a, a little private, personal footnote looking at the Lord... He loved his men. God so loved the world as well. But make no mistake, Jesus loved the Father more than anything, which was the foundation of all his other loves. He wanted to be with his Father. He also knew it was best for the disciples if he would be with his Father. Because Romans 8 is really interesting. It says the Spirit and Jesus are both praying for us. They're making intercession for us to the Father. 
He seems to highlight the fact that none of his disciples, by the way, were interested in where he was going. I mean, look, look at the end of verse, uh, back to chapter 16. Look at the end of verse 5. Uh, none of you ask me where you are going. You might say, well, hang on a second, Rick. Uh, Peter and Thomas both expressed considerable interest in where Jesus was going. Look back at chapter 13, verse 26. I'm sorry, not, not verse 26. Look back at uh, chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? That was solicited by what Peter said back at the end of the chapter in uh, um, verse 36, where he said, Lord, where are you going? Now, how can Jesus say, none of you are interested in where I'm going? Because they thought, remember, they thought Jesus was saying, I'm going to leave the upper room. I'm going to go down uh, about 800 yards to the temple from where the upper room was. I'm going to go down. I'm going to establish my Messiahship. Everyone's going to fall on their knees and worship me. And the disciples are saying, that's going to be a great moment. Where do we get to be? Sit and be honored like you. They were thinking spatially. Well, when Jesus debunked that and said, no, no, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Anyone who comes to the Father comes through me. I'm the way. We're not going down to the temple. We're going up to the Father into heaven. You would think that they would say, well, how do we get there? But they were totally sidetracked, as we'll see in in, uh, verse 6, by their sorrow. They didn't hear Jesus say, guess where I'm going. This is a wonderful place where I'm going. They heard him say just that, I'm going. Now again, before we're too hard on the disciples, if you had God in the flesh with you, wouldn't you not want him to leave? Wouldn't you not want him to go away? Wouldn't it be crushing to you if Jesus said, we've had a great three years, but it's over? These requests that Peter and Thomas were making about knowing where Jesus was going was on this earth. Where on this earth are you going? But the Lord clearly taught them his departure was not for another place on the planet. He was going to the Father. And that should have brought them joy. Look look, look for a second at, at chapter 14, verse 28. Back where we studied a few weeks ago. You heard that I said, I go away, I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, keyword, had joy, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. If you really understood the theology of what I'm telling you, you would have been happy. Not only for me to be rejoined with my Father, but the fact that my leaving to go be with the Father is good for you in heaven, and my leaving and staying in the Holy Spirit is good for you on earth. But they weren't thinking theologically. They were thinking emotionally. That's why there were no questions, no requests for clarification, no no follow-up. You say, why was that? Well, we find out now in verse 6 with a second consideration of Jesus' departure to heaven. First is the reason for his absence. He was going to be with the Father. He wanted to be with the one he'd always been with. Secondly, the consequence of Jesus' absence. The consequence Verse 6 says, but because I've said these things to you, sorrow has literally bubbled up, overflown in your heart. 
It's moved you along. It's a word that means it's motivated you. It's moved you. It's made you act. It's made you think. Sorrow has filled up your heart. Now, the disciples were focusing on the fact and reality of Jesus' departure, and specifically uh, what, what that would mean for, here it is, them. Remember back in 14, he said, Jesus says, if you knew, if you loved me, if you really cared for me, you would want me to be where I want to be most, which is with my Father. By the way, as we'll see at the end of chapter 16, they would be there with him eventually as well. Now, what's interesting is that Christ told them repeatedly what it would mean for them as well as what it would mean for himself. When he went to the Father, they were continually dull of hearing theologically. They listened emotionally to Jesus, not theologically to Christ. And wow, is there a lesson there for all of us. Do we hear the words of Scripture, the words of Christ, from our experience, or do we understand them as they were first and intentionally written, as theological foundations, theological parameters for our thinking to be anchored to? God intends, don't miss this, God intends for truth to heal grief. This is what's going on. They're sorrowful. They're they're, they're overwhelmed. And instead of saying, oh, I'm so sorry, and here's a hug, he gave them truth. Truth heals sorrow. Truth heals grief. No matter what the situation is, God's truth can bring immeasurable solve to your pain. I experienced that this week. Uh, Kim and I both... uh, Uh, witnessed a friend of ours die and go to heaven. If we had only focused on our loss and the pain of that, it wouldn't make sense. There are theological realities attached to every reality on the earth that God gives us his truth for so that we can properly interpret it. I mean, just a little footnote to that. If we really believed in the resurrection, do you understand how many problems that would solve? If we really believe that this earth is temporal and heaven is forever, if we really believe that this earth is temporal and hell is forever, how many problems would that really solve? What Edward said in his resolutions, I'm resolved every day to think when I experience any pain that I won't experience pain forever in hell and resolved when I experience any joy to remember that I'll have that exponentially enjoyed in heaven to think beyond the experience of this world. Truth solves any and every grief. In chapters 14 and 15, we're full of truth that Jesus was teaching them so that their hearts wouldn't be sunk into sorrow. It should have resonated with the disciples' hearts to give them comfort, to give them perspective in their grief. But Jesus gives us an amazing insight into the power here of sorrow. Sorrow had actually drowned the disciples' perception and hearing of truth. Listen, sorrow will either drown out the truth you know, or sorrow will be drowned by the truth you know. It's very simple. Sorrow will drown out the truth you know, or sorrow will be drowned by the truth you know. Sorrow is a powerful emotion. Being grieved, being anxious... Very powerful emotions that I really believe 
And God in his providence allows us to experience so that we'll connect the dots and get above the clouds, above the storm, and see that he's still the sun who's shining. We would do well to study how our own heart responds to sorrow. Are you an expert to know how your heart responds to sorrow? If you got some bad news this afternoon, can you? Do you have a catalog in your mind to predict how your heart is going to have a reflex to that disappointment news, to disappointing news, to, to, that, to that heartache? Listen, all of us are one doctor's appointment away from having traumatic news. Are you ready for that? We are one phone call away from hearing news that will change our life. Are you ready for that? Yes, we need to have a theology of the Holy Spirit, but having a theology of the Holy Spirit really includes having a theology of sorrow. It means understanding that Jesus cares and knows and has provided for us truth grounded in his word that can guide us through that. As we've said over and over, we, you have to ask the three questions. What do I feel? What is it? What do I think? What do I know? What do I feel? I feel pretty lousy. I feel like this is awful. That's a natural response. What do I think? How am I thinking about this? What do I believe? What do I know? And to get to that point where we have to think, what do I believe? And what I believe controls what I think and then has control over what I feel can't stop feeling grief. Listen, Jesus wept over the death of Lazarus. Grief and sorrow in and of themselves are not evil. It's how we interpret those that becomes the issue. Look at the promise of chapter 16, verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament. Thank you, Jesus. And the world will rejoice but the world will rejoice and you will grieve. But, here it is, one day your grief will be what? Turned into joy. What does the book of Revelation tell us about our tears? They will be wiped away, which tells us that some people get to heaven with tears. Life has been a burden. Life has been full of sorrows. To such extent that we arrive in heaven's court with these burdens that God instantly erases and wipes away. That leads us to a third consideration of Jesus' departure to heaven. The reason for his absence, he was going to his father. The consequence of Jesus' absence, sorrow. And before we move on, can I just say there, there may be a little bit of a righteous thread in that. Isn't there a, a longing for the presence of Christ? What does the word Maranatha mean? Lord, come quickly. We long to be in reunion with Christ. And that will come into focus here in a minute. The third consideration is this, the advantage of Jesus' absence. The advantage of Jesus' absence. Now we find the Holy Spirit. But I tell you the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that he was not telling the truth before that. Jesus is saying, this is an exclamation point. I'm telling you the truth. Take notes. Listen up. Eye contact. But I tell you the truth. It is actually, this would have shocked them. It's to your advantage, to your betterment, that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, the paraclete, 
the advocate, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. Now think about what Jesus has already said about his departure. Back in chapter 14, verse 2, he was going to prepare a place for them. In 14, verse 12, he would leave, uh, he would enable them to do greater works than they'd ever done. And listen, greater works than he had done once he left. In 14, verse 20, his departure would bring them richer knowledge. And in 14, verse 28, it would bring them closer intimacy with God through his spirit. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. Back in chapter 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another which tells us that Jesus is already with them. It means to be, come alongside, to call alongside, to encourage. I'll give you another one that he may be with you. Then he says this, forever. Jesus wasn't going to be with them in that state forever. Oh, we'll be with Christ forever. We'll be with the three in one, one in three forever. But Jesus himself would be leaving and waiting for us in heaven. John 14, 26. But when the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. This word helper is the word para alongside kaleo, cleat, call. He's the one who encourages us. Now, we understand that that's, that has two dimensions. It has kind of a negative prodding and a positive encouragement. The best way I can explain that is, is um, uh, a coach. Um, I used to wrestle, and I remember I had a coach who was a very good paracaleo, paraclete. Sometimes he would say, Holland, you are stupid, triple stupid. That move got you this loss of points. That was bad. Don't ever do that again. And he would get in my kitchen. I'm being very gracious in how I'm describing his getting in my kitchen, by the way. But other times when I would do something right, he would say, that was awesome, that was great. Do that again. That's a great takedown. That's a move you want to do. And it was the negative and the positive, which is the same thing that happens in the Spirit's using of the Word of God and the people of God to counsel us, coming alongside us, encouraging and convicting. But now Jesus goes beyond simply listing the benefits and he asserts that it's to the advantage of the believer and the disciples that he leaves. Are you kidding me? How in the world, think about this, how in the world could it be to my advantage as a disciple if I'm sitting there with the incarnate second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, how is it to my advantage if he leaves? Can you think of anything worse? Well, they couldn't. And trust me, if you had been in their sandals, you wouldn't have been able to either. How can he say that? Why would it be to their and our advantage for Jesus' presence to leave them? Well, the answer has to do with physicality. The great wonder of the incarnation is God is fully, excuse me, Jesus is fully God and truly, what? Man, right? Being truly man, he was localized to one place. Remember Philippians 2, he set aside the use of some of his divine attributes um, uh, in the incarnation. It wasn't that he was any less omniscient or less omnipresent. He just didn't use that in his humanity in a way that he did before and after the incarnation. Jesus was 
localized. He could be in one place with one group of people. That wasn't going to be the case with the Holy Spirit. The invisible, ever-present presence of the Holy Spirit is better, Jesus says, than the physical, localized presence of his own person. Whereas Jesus could only be one place at one time in the limitation of his humanity, the Spirit can be everywhere at one time all the same. Now here's the question I have again. Why? I mean, why is this the case? Why would Jesus not be here locally and have the Spirit? Couldn't we have it both ways? The answer is yes. And that's called the millennial kingdom and heaven. Yes, we will have Jesus in one place. And and I have no ability to explain this. His presence pervading the whole planet at the same time. And I can tell you I can't explain that, but I can't wait to enjoy that. You say, one place, where will he be? Well, He's going to be one place. He is going to be physically, literally in Jerusalem on a throne on that temple mount with a rebuilt temple ruling and reigning from that point. Yet, his presence will be pervasive in the planet. You say, how does that work? I don't know. But it'll be a lot of fun to enjoy. We just don't know why Jesus during this era of redemptive history has chosen to be absent and to send the Spirit, except for this. Our advantage is displayed, the disciples' advantage is displayed in his absence and the Holy Spirit's presence. How do you explain that? Isn't it amazing, isn't it remarkable that the disciples were much more without Christ than they were when Jesus was with them. Their ministry was far more expansive. They were far braver, far more accurate when Jesus was gone. Why? Because Jesus Christ, through the Spirit of God, to the glory of the Father, designed that we live this life by sight. No, by what? By faith. He designed that we would live by faith, that we would demonstrate to the world what it means to have an invisible Savior, that his grace and glory would be demonstrated in us believing things that you can't see, things that you can't prove. Listen, the next time someone says, you prove to me that God exists, say, I'm alive. I will give a defense for the hope that is where? It's within me. You know what? I can't give you three proofs. I'll, I can go over the teleological existence for the for uh, the uh, teleological proof of the existence of God or the ontological. Uh, uh, no one's going to believe because of that. Just smile at him and say, "My proof is that Jesus Christ saved me, invaded my life, and I have a relationship with Him, and I have the peace that you want and you don't have." I have the, 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 the care from the Father that you want but don't have. And I'm going to extend that to you in the gospel. God intended for us to live by faith so that one day when we have sight, it will be dramatic.
This is important, by the way, as it relates to the doctrine of the Lord's table. You say, why? Because this is an exact confusion that the Roman church made for centuries, still makes today. In looking at the, the Lord's table like this, they would believe that in these elements, that the presence of Christ is called the real presence, actually participates in what they would call the bread, the host, and the blood. What does that mean? That in a mysterious, spiritual way, this bread is turned into the flesh of Christ. And in a spiritual way, this juice, wine, is turned into the red corpuscles of Christ. Now, people have said for centuries, well, why doesn't it taste like human flesh? And why doesn't it taste like blood? And they would tell us, well, it's a spiritual real presence, not a physical real presence, but it has to be a physical real presence and really here and really real for it to be efficacious to save you because in the Roman Mass, it's believed that Jesus is crucified again every time you take the Mass. What's the book of Hebrews say? Once. He died once for the sin of mankind. So when we come to the celebration we're celebrating and remembering what he did one time. What did Jesus say? Do this to re-crucify me? He said, do this to what? Remember me. We're going to do that in a moment. And I want to encourage you that Bob's going to lead us in a song to prepare our hearts. Um, that as we do so, uh, th this table is not just a, uh, a ritual or rite that Mission Road Bible Church does once a month. This is, this is serious stuff. It doesn't have a mystical power that is poison if you take it unworthy, except that it has a spiritual power that can be damaging to anyone who does not take it in a worthy manner. What does that mean? It means we take this because we remember Christ's death for our sins. If you know Christ, this is for you. If you don't know Christ, let these elements pass. We're, we're glad you're here. We'd love to talk to you about the gospel. No one's going to look down on you. No one's going to Whisper about that. But this is for believers who have given their faith and trust to Christ. It's an opportunity for us to remember Christ, to, to repent of sins, make things right. And as I say just about every month, this becomes the checkpoint in my life. In a few minutes, we'll have time to sing and pray, and I'm going to go over in my mind, what did I confess at the Lord's table last month is it the same list as this month? Has there been any traction in that? This becomes the accountability checkpoint that the Lord intended in our life. He says, do this for two reasons. What are they? To remember me and to examine yourself. And the way we do this in a worthy manner is by a, a fresh memory of Christ and an honest evaluation of ourselves. Now, here's, let me encourage you. If you examine yourself rightly, none of us need to take this today. None of us are worthy. It's his death that makes the worthiness of our petition before God worthy. It's his death that cancels out our sin. It's his life that gives us life. It's his reality that gives us faith. If you're harboring sin, if there's a relationship that's unresolved as a believer, it's better to let this pass by than to take it in a way that we're celebrating Christ's death for our sin while at the same time harboring and holding on to sin that's 
easily repented of. You say, well, how do I do that? You can do that right now. You can repent of those sins before these elements even reach you. But let's do it as a purifying act, as a holy act, as a, an act of consecration and an act of commitment. Not a superstitious act. We're going to remember Christ and examine our souls. Let me ask you to bow your heads in prayer and ask the musicians to come. And Father, we are of all people the most wretched, not because we compare ourselves to anyone else, but because we see our sin in the light of the glory of your Son, the perfect Lord Jesus. We need to be redeemed. We need to find that Redeemer. Not only in salvation, but we need to remember him in our sanctification, our pursuit of holiness. So as we sing this song, prepare our hearts to give special attention to that one Redeemer who has rescued us not only from ourselves and not only from Satan, but rescued us from you and your wrath. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. <laughs>